Good to be with all of you this morning. I'm so excited to get into God's word and um, want to just say a quick word of prayer and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your church, our church, Lord. Thank you that your covenant promise is that you are with us whenever we gather in your name uh, and that your presence is with us in the preaching and reading and hearing of your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a series today, Pursuing Christ Together, Global Expression. I'm going to be focusing on a local emphasis, particularly cross-cultural engagement in ministry. Today, our text comes from the Gospel of Luke, uh, verses 25 through 37. And it's a familiar text to many, many of you, as it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's start our text today. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you, you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. As we uh, get into the sermon here, I'm going to give a few disclaimers. We're going to discuss our text, and then I'm going to have three points or three questions at the end. Who needs you? Why compassion? What next? So disclaimers, discussion, three questions. Who needs you? Why compassion? What next? Who needs you in CU? is the title of our message today, Who Needs You and See You. Uh, as I said, I would much rather be in person, but I'm excited to be able to share God's word, my first official Sunday as your lead pastor. Uh, I want to just take a moment and quickly honor any veterans that are here with us today. As I was there a few weeks ago and meeting many of you in person, uh, I met Dutch and I met Dick and others, uh, but, but those two men, and I'm sure that there are others, are veterans, and we honor you for fighting, for serving our country. Um, 
we are in the middle of something unprecedented, not only with the pandemic, but with everything that has happened in the last several weeks over cries for racial justice and for mercy in our nation. And I think it's important for us as a church, as we talk about uh, pursuing Christ together in global expression, that we think about, well, what does that mean, even on a local level, as Champaign-Urbana is home to many different people groups, many different ethnicities, uh, immigrants from around the world. Uh, and just think about the moment we're living in and everything that has transpired culturally just in the last few weeks. NFL commissioner Roger Goodell, he apologized uh, in terms of what was happening in the racial cries for racial justice. He apologized for not acknowledging peaceful protests four years ago by the players in the league. NASCAR has banned the Confederate flag from its premises and events. Mississippi, the state of Mississippi voted last weekend to get rid of its flag that bears the Confederate flag. Um, even kids are talking about issues of race. Nickelodeon had a talk about race this week. In the food industry, Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima are getting, um, they're being done away with because of the race, racial stereotypes and the racist stereotypes that they persist. And here's what is mind boggling and I think sort of um, encapsulates this moment. There have been independent studies of the protests that have happened in many different places all over the nation. 40% of the counties in our country have had some level of protest. 40%, oh, it's over 1,400 counties in the nation. And of all the protests in response to George Floyd's uh, killing, murder, and, and others, it has been determined that this is the largest protest movement in the history of the U.S. As God's people, we should not miss the moment. We should not miss the opportunity to think about how can we engage, how can we pursue Christ and engage our neighbor in a cross-cultural context. As we think about the 4th of July and independence, this is a weekend that is mixed with excitement and sorrow, with joy and mourning. Uh, I think about in the scripture after the exile, the, the Jewish people, they went back to their homeland and they rebuilt the temple. And there's a, there's a text that talks about how they were shouting. <clears throat> but within that shouting, there was both cries for joy and this cries for sorrow and mourning. Those who saw the former house of God were crying in sorrow because of the diminished glory of this new facility. But those who didn't see it, they were crying out of excitement. And, and, and we live in this moment where if you look at social media and look at the news media and other avenues, in our nation, there's both excitement and there's mourning happening all at the same time in our country. And as the people of God, we are called to both be joyful with those who are joyful and mourn with those who mourn. Um, Frederick Douglass, I think about how almost 170 years ago to the day on July 5th, 1852, he gave probably his most famous speech, what to a slave is the 4th of July? This gives us context as we think about the Good Samaritan. What to the Slave is the 4th of July was this, the title and the mantra of this speech. And this, one of his most moving lines is this, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. You may rejoice, I must mourn. Why is he talking about mourning? Frederick Douglass, had formerly been a slave. 
uh, I believe he was born free, but then taken into slavery. And he was able to escape himself. He's an educated man. He was a great orator, uh, influential abolitionist. And he was mourning because though he himself was free, millions of others who were of his color, African-Americans in the nation at that time were not. And he was mourning because of the greatest ironies probably in the history of our nation that um, not a hundred years later from the Revolutionary War, uh, they were celebrating on that weekend or actually in that, I don't know if it was a weekend, but on July 4th, they were celebrating the uh, freedom from oppression from another nation, yet that same, our country was oppressing millions of its own inhabitants. And that's why he was in mourning. God is doing something in our country and in our community. And as believers at TCBC, God's calling us, our church and all churches, not just to follow in the trend of being anti-racist, but as, we'll, as we see here in this passage, having social compassion and cross-cultural loving uh, uh, love towards our neighbor. So let's look at the, what the lawyer asks Jesus. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's speaking in terms of salvation being achieved by his own merit, his own works. And many of the Jews in that time, uh, in the first century, they believed that their life was, is, is they looked at the law and they looked at their behavior and their life and their actions, that as long as they could do enough of the obedience to the law, and when, they, when eternity came, as long as their good deeds outweighed their bad, they would receive salvation. And so this lawyer, he's asking Jesus, in a way, do you agree with that? But at the heart of this is really a self-reliance. One commentator says, it places an emphasis on personal heroics. The tense of the verb, what shall I do, implies that the, by the performance of some one thing, eternal life can be secured. What heroic act? must be performed or what great sacrifice made. So what Jesus does in this interaction is he reveals the pride of self-reliance of the lawyer. And there's really two, two types of pride that the lawyer will exhibit in this passage as we will see. But the pride of self-reliance, it is all about me in terms of receiving eternal life. Um, when we think about, as we approach the scripture, we have to be open to being corrected. Have you ever seen a child with an imaginary friend? They're having a conversation with their imaginary friend and I have kids and this happens frequently. Um, but you never see a child telling their imaginary friend, hey, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if I wanna do that. I don't agree with that. Why do you always try to tell me this? Why does that not happen? Because the imaginary friend is subject to the will of the child. And sometimes if we're not careful, we could approach God in that same way the lawyer presumably approaching Christ in that way, presuming that he's going to just agree with whatever I think, that as I view things, what I believe, God will just fall in line with that. Well, God's not an imaginary friend. In fact, as we approach him, as the lawyer approached Christ, he was being provoked to have a change in his heart, change of mentality, change in perspective. As we approach Christ, 
God also offers that same provocation to change. How did Christ provoke the lawyer? Well, basically he says, if you rely on your works of salvation, if you want to achieve eternal life, you're going to be crushed under the weight of what you really have to do to love God 100% of the time with all of with 100% of your heart, 100% of your soul, 100% of your mind, 100% of your strength, and to love 100% of your neighbors 100% of the time. If you try that, you're going to be crushed. You can't do it. If that is the basis for you to achieve eternal life, it is impossible. Now, the law is helpful for those of us who follow Jesus. It is helpful to point us in the, in the direction of how we should live as ones having been redeemed. But as a means to gain salvation, you'll be crushed under the weight of what you have to do. And the reality of self-reliance is a reality that all of the world is under. Whether you are traditional culture and you're told by your culture to be a obedient son or obedient daughter, to be a dutiful wife, to be a devoted husband, it's all on you to live up to that standard, to achieve eternal life or salvation in regards to that traditional culture. If it's contemporary culture, well, it's the message is, it's all about you as the individual to determine, don't listen to the people around you, don't listen to um, the community, but you figure out what it is, it's your dream and what you're called to do and you go do that. It's all self-reliance. And so Jesus is revealing in this whole interaction, self-reliance is going to crush you. He says, when he says, do this and you will live, Jesus says that to the, uh, to the lawyer, Jesus is not endorsing self-reliance. No, he's setting him up lovingly to recognize that he would be crushed under the weight of trying to gain his own eternal salvation. It's like this. I was uh, one of my friends and pastor friends, and I worked under, uh, his name is Adam Burt, and he played in the NHL, a professional hockey player for 14 years, and then he retired and he became a pastor, and I served under him for many years here in New York. He actually lives in New Jersey now. Uh, but uh, so when I was first getting to know him, it, this is a big guy, pre professional athlete. And I, you know, think I'm a pretty fit guy. I decided, hey, I'd love to come work out with you one, one time. Adam worked out twice a day. I mean, he was always going. He was a gym rat. And he said that about himself. And so I remember getting in the, the gym with him and getting on the stationary bike. And he's like, listen, okay, crank it up to 12. 12. And it's like, we're going to go for 20 minutes. Well, I could do it for like one minute. And then we go do this whole workout that he learned from the Navy SEALs. And he's like, okay, we're going to do our back. And it's like, he showed me it was the weight of literal weight of trying to follow in his steps. I can't keep up. It crushed me. And I felt the result, residual effects for at least a week afterwards. As the lawyer here is trying to maintain a semblance of control, he realizes, okay, this is a huge feat, but let's focus on the word in the second commandment of the two, the love God, then the love neighbor. Let's focus on the word neighbor. Maybe if I could pare that down, then I still have a chance of doing this. And so he asks Jesus, and the text tells us in an attempt to justify himself, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And this is the second pride. It's the pride of self-centeredness. 
So the first pride, the pride of self-reliance, leads to the second of self-centeredness. And what I mean by that is he put himself in the center and he's thinking concentric circles. Okay, my neighbor is my family, my friends, maybe my colleagues or people that I live nearby. And then let's cut it off there. If that's my neighbor, I think I got it. I think I can do this. Well, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to debunk this whole idea. And he flips the script, so to speak, on the Samaritan. And in the story, which many of you know it well, it's the robbed and beat up man who was passed over by the priest and the Levite. These were guys who would be voted to be most likely to be pious. But not on this particular day. They passed away from the beat up man. Perhaps they thought, if I remove myself proximity-wise far enough, he's not my responsibility. What is absurd about Jesus's parable is that it's a Samaritan who not only does not cross to the other side, but quite the contrary. It says that he, he comes close, he comes near, he has compassion. The absurdity of Jesus saying that the Samaritan was able to do this is that the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other, literal hate. I mean, you could probably put it in the category of the, you know, Italian mob, the five families and the mob and the things that they might do to each other or, you know, gangs on the street, you know, the Bloods and the Crips, what they might do to each other. That's the kind of animosity the Jews had toward the Samaritans. Additionally, it wasn't just a turf war that they were fighting over. There was a racial undertone. The Samaritans were half-breeds. Back during the conquering of the, Assyri the Assyrians, when they conquered the Northern Kingdom, what the Assyri Assyrians did uh, intentionally is they, they diluted the bloodline of the Jewish people. They did this for all various peoples they conquered so that there would not be a future revolt against them. So they, they forced intermarrying so that the Samaritans were not a full Jewish people. So there's this racial undertone. And Jesus says, it's the Samaritan who comes close and who shows compassion. Calvin, John Calvin, he says that the commandment to love God, or rather to love the neighbor as yourself, it could have just as easily been stated as thus. Love every man, every man as yourself. Every man. Not just those close in proximity, but every man. And here's what he goes on to say, and I love how Calvin really just dissects the human heart. He says that men are blinded, men and women, and children. Men are blinded by their pride so that every man is satisfied with himself. And he scarcely deigns to admit others to an equal rank and withholds from them the duties he owes them. The Lord purposely declares that all are neighbors. Scarcely deigns to admit others to an equal rank. What does he mean? He means that because of our pride, because of our sinful, sinful nature, we look down on people and we find some reason to see them as below us. And we don't deign, we don't stoop down, we don't condescend. And it wouldn't really truly be condescending because they're not beneath us, but we don't go down because of pride and lift them and elevate them up to the same rank as us. And in doing so, 
there's a justification in our sinful heart that if they're not on the same level, I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to, I don't have to approach. I don't, the priest, the Levite, if I could create enough distance, I could look down on that man. I don't have to deal with that. Well, let's see an illustration of that um, from the history of the church in America. There was, a, there was a, an article this week in NPR, um, and it really has a jarring title, but I think it is fitting for us to be tenderized to how the world, how others view the history of Christianity in our nation. The title of this article is White Supremacist Ideas Have Historical Roots in Christianity. It's a jarring title, but it's not untrue. There is a, a lot of truth to that. It's not the full truth, but it is true. And here's a couple of things that it mentions. There was a pastor in the South during the pre-Civil War and Civil War time named James Henley Thornwell. He's a white man, and he also was a slave, slave owner. He's a senior pastor of a church uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. Here's a quote from one of his sermons in 1860 war, uh, 1861 during the Civil War, an opportunity for the church to repent and to turn to God and to love their neighbor. But here's what he says. As long as that African race in its comparative degradation coexists side by side with the white, bondage is its normal condition. Bondage. What is he saying? He's saying for black people, it is normal that they would be in bondage, that they would be enslaved. He's looking down. And as Calvin says, he didn't deign to admit others of a different color to an equal rank as him. And he therefore felt okay about withholding from them the duties he owed them. And we can understand why Frederick Douglass, who wrote, who spoke that um, speech, uh, not a decade, not a full decade before this, why he was mourning over the Independence Day. Fast forward 100 years, so that was 1861. Fast forward to 1961. There was an incident in Montgomery, Alabama where Freedom Riders were heading in to Montgomery and there was a mixture of black and white individuals on a bus. And upon getting off the bus, they were met with a mob of 500 people, men, women, and children, who brutally attacked them and beat them, and in some cases uh, left unconscious some of these freedom riders. In the crowd were Christians, churchgoers. And a pastor in Montgomery, in three weeks after the event, named Henry Lyon Jr., stands up in a meeting for the White Citizens Council, giving a Christian perspective, quote unquote, denouncing the civil rights protesters and he says this, ladies and gentlemen, for 15 years, I have had the privilege of being a pastor of a white Baptist church in the city. He goes on to say, if we stand 100 years from now, it will still be a white church. I am a believer in a separation of the races, and I am nonetheless a Christian. Scarcely deigns to admit others to an equal rank and withholds from them the duties he owes them. These are obvious, erroneous examples. 
And as I mentioned before, they ought to tenderize us to the reality of how the world views the church and part of its history in, in the U.S. And it is part of that story of mourning that our society and our country is facing today. So in many ways, and in many respects, you could draw a thread of mourning from Frederick Douglass in 1852 and, and fast forward it into the present. Though many circumstances have changed, some sentiments have not, but I am thankful as men and women who love Jesus, as TCBC, we have an opportunity in this moment, in this moment of history making, to have a proper response as we pursue Christ together uh, in global expression and in local expression of cross-cultural ministry. What would Christ say to these men? I, I honestly don't know those two pastors, the fullness of it, but I do know that in 1 John 4, 20, it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so we are called as a people in loving God to express our love for Jesus and how we love one another. Here's our first point. We can bring up the first point of uh, our slide. So we think about this in a very practical, very local perspective. Who needs you? That's a question that I believe the text is asking of us, of the Good Samaritan. You see, the lawyer, he approached Jesus and he said, who is my neighbor? Jesus flipped the question as he told the parable and he said, who was the neighbor? In other words, the lawyer is asking, who do I need to see as a neighbor? But Jesus is saying, who needs to see you as a neighbor? Who needs you? Who needs you? We often think about people that we need in our lives. If you're in business, you think about, I need investors, I need uh, supply chain. If you're um, you know, in education or if you're in research, I need grants, I need all these things. Um, and those are real needs. Family life, we need each other. But Christ is compelling us to think about, well, who needs us? And yes, it is true in those various spheres our family needs us, our customers, if you're in business, our students, if you're in education, our clients, if you're in various industries, those people do need you. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is about not just who is immediately available and around you and who's a part of your routine. Let's think about Champaign County and Champaign-Urbana. Champaign County is 66% white, 14% Black or African-American, 11% Asian, 6% Latino. When you think about the cities themselves, Champaign and Urbana, the, the percentages of the minorities is higher. How can Twin City Bible Church better reflect the demographic and makeup of the community in which it lies? Let's think about poverty, crime, and immigrants. Again, pursuing Christ together in global expression, but with a local cross-cultural cross emphasis here. Poverty in Champaign-Urbana. As of 2017, so three years ago, about 32% of Urbana residents live below poverty level. 
the net the federal poverty level. So almost a third of Urbana. About 27% of Champaign residents live below the poverty level. If you think about the students in the public school system in the two cities, in, well, just to, by way of comparison, in the state of Illinois overall, 49% of the students are considered low income and are eligible for free or reduced lunch. Well, in Champaign, in the city, 54.8% of students are considered low income. In Urbana, 72% of students. U of I serves low income students and as first years and transfers through a program uh, that they have about 1200 a year. Um, but of course, there's more than 1200 students that are considered low income in the university because that's just focusing on first year and transfer students. In terms of crime, Urbana is in the 92nd percentile nationally for violent crime. Champaign, 85 percentile. Those are not good numbers. In other words, what that means is 92% of communities in the nation uh, compared to Urbana have better crime rates, uh, lower crime rates, I should say, and 85% compared to Champaign. So these are cities with high crime, but often we, you may not feel that because they're isolated in certain communities within Champaign-Urbana, or concentrated in certain areas. And these are numbers that I verified um, through the church TCBC uh, safety team. There's also gang activity in North Champaign, West Champaign, Southeast Urbana. In terms of immigrants, there's 24,000 immigrants from nearly 80 countries in the county of Champaign. And the U of I has the largest international student population of any public university in America. Why do I bring all of this up? Is we're thinking about pursuing Christ together um, through, you know, in global expression, but locally through cross-cultural ministry, we should think about our neighbors in terms of how they are affected by life. They may not be that man that's beat up physically or uh, have been robbed physically, but certainly they have been beat up by life, by circumstances, by hardships, by systemic issues, by uh, generational issues going on. And Jesus is asking us, who needs you? Who needs you? Christ calls us to view them as our neighbors and to view ourselves as their neighbors to the extent that we could ask ourselves, could it be that some of the immigrant population on the campus or in the community, they need you? Could it be that single moms who are struggling to keep up with how uh, education is going for their kids who may be working jobs and can't show up for uh, you know, teacher parent um, meetings, perhaps she needs you. Uh, perhaps it's people who've been in cycles of poverty for generations uh, in Champaign or Urbana. Perhaps they need you. And it's not that we could obviously meet all of their needs, but certainly we could have a change in our perspective. And as we think about who needs us, it's not that we are their savior coming in to rescue them out of their circumstances, but we are their neighbor coming and offering help as the Good Samaritan did. Quickly here, point two, why compassion? Why compassion? When we think about compassion, 
compassion is the most common expression of Christ towards his people in the Gospels. It's the most common expression attributed to him or emotion attributed to him. And here's the thing. As followers of Christ, if we were to view, if we were to be that self-reliant person, then we would say, well, I just pull myself up by my bootstraps. They've got to go do that. They've just got to work hard. They just got to do better. But we realize that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, that he showed compassion on you and I, that he came to where we were, beat up by our sin, and he bound and bandaged our wounds and afflictions on the cross. Then as a response, we should go and do that to our neighbors, and we should desire to emulate the one who came to save us. Why compassion? Finally, what next? What next? Well, among the many things that I could say, and I'll just, for sake of time, be brief. I invite us to prayer. I invite us to even self-reflection and examination, uh, opportunity to consider, Lord, have I been neglectful in this area in any way? Or, Lord, what are you provoking me to do? Who should I view as my neighbor? Um, to pray for ministries. And, and I know that, by the way, I'm not saying by any stretch that these are not things that TCBC is already doing. Um, there are great things that are happening. But what I am saying is we should view this as a personal responsibility to view our neighbor uh, in the way that Christ has called us to. But let's pray for the ministries, some of which we're involved in as a church, Salt and Light, Stone Creek Church's Food Pantry, uh, others of which we may not be, but are serving our community well, Eastern Illinois Food Bank, New Americans Welcome Center, CU Fresh Start Effort, uh, Pastor Willie's uh, uh, corners, midnight basketball ministry, and on and on. There's so many things that we could pray for, but let's pray for what's already happening, that God would infuse it with resources and creativity to reach more of its neighbors, and that we would find opportunities to join in. Let me summarize. As we pursue Christ together um, with global expression, I'm encouraging us, and I believe that Christ compels us through his word to think about our local neighbors and how we can be a neighbor to those that are in need. It may not be that they are someone we meet along the way from our route to home, from home to work or home to school, but they are present. And my point in the statistics was to highlight the need, some of the needs, there's many others, but the need that is present in Champaign-Urbana and God is calling us to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, there's much to sift through about what I shared, but ultimately my trust is in you, Holy Spirit. And I pray going forward that as a community that we would recognize the moment we're in of not only rejoicing, but mourning, and sorrow, that we would find ourselves in an opportunity to be your solution of social compassion in Champaign-Urbana. Give us grace in Jesus' name. Amen.